invite you to turn in your Bible with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, as we are studying together Jesus' words uh, to the seven churches. And just a reminder that he's not speaking only to uh, seven churches in Asia Minor. He's speaking uh, to Harvest Church right here in Wyoming, Michigan. Revelation chapter 3, we're going to read the first six uh, verses, the letter to the church in Sardis. Let's give our attention to God's Word this morning. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Father, thank you that you speak, Christ speaks, the Spirit takes these words, and we hear the voice of God. I pray that today, Lord, that you would give us those ears to hear and to receive uh, to believe, um, to, to repent. Uh, Lord, as you, as you address us, your church, purchased by your own blood, uh, Lord, may we hear your voice loud and clear. In Jesus' name, amen. Our text uh, this morning, it's not one of the, it's not one of the um, more chipper uh, texts in Scripture. Uh, there is a sober, sober reality, right, to this letter. It presents us with the, uh, the reminder that uh, there can be a discrepancy, a fatal discrepancy even, between our reputation and our, uh, the reality of our life. Uh, what people see and think of us and what we actually are, are usually not the same thing. And we, we sense that, don't we? We, we have a, a sneaking suspicion, uh, maybe some of you have a settled conviction, that if people knew you the way you knew you, um, they wouldn't think of you in the same way. And so we, uh, we often try to um, pretend maybe uh, uh, to burnish, to brighten up our reputation a little bit so that people would not see the things that we see. It's a temptation ever since Adam and Eve fell into sin. It's a hide. We don't want to be exposed. Well, this, church to, this letter to the church in Sardis is an exposing kind of letter. I want you to imagine uh, if there was a video camera that was able to record not just your activities and your conversations, but your thoughts. I want you to imagine what it'd be like if uh, someone followed you around for a week or just a day and recorded your conversations and your activities, and then we could see in the subtitles uh, what you're actually thinking. 
And, uh, and imagine the session decided this would be a good way to, uh, you know, we're a large church. Uh, it's hard to get to know each other well. This could be a great way to really uh, get to know each other. And so uh, we're going to have someone follow you around this week. And then uh, next Sunday after the service during Sunday school, we're going to present the video clip. Uh, come and get to really know, right? What Mike thinks or Sharon thinks or, uh, right, uh, see them as you've never seen them before. How, would, uh, how excited would you be about um, coming and seeing the video clip of your life, your thoughts? I think most of us would be um, aghast and we would find ourselves humiliated. Well, that's a little bit of the experience of the church in Sardis. Remember, this is not just a private letter that Jesus is writing to them. This is a letter that's being read by all the churches. And it's not... It's not a complimentary letter. Just try to imagine uh, a day about 2,000 years ago in the city of Sardis. Uh, Sardis is a city with a great reputation. It was, a very, it was the capital city of the, of the sort of the empire of, of uh, Laodicea. It, uh, it was a big deal. Um, it was very wealthy. It was situated on, a, on top of uh, some cliffs, so it was uh, considered to be impregnable. Um, it, was a, it was a big deal. And, uh, but their reputation um, was not the same as their reality. But imagine now the people gathering together. It's a, it's a Sunday. People are excited to come to worship. Um, the worship uh, at Sardis was apparently lively. They have a reputation for being alive. There was, um, the message would be relevant. There's a certain buzz to the church in Sardis. People are talking about the church in Sardis. And today was a special day because the rumor was, had it that uh, a letter had been received from the Apostle John. Everyone knows that John, uh, the old, that old uh, apostle, disciple of Jesus Christ, is, he's, being ex- he's been exiled on Patmos, but he's written a letter that is not just uh, from John, it's from Jesus, the Lord of the church. We have not heard uh, a word from Christ for many years. And now uh, Jesus has spoken to his church, and the letter's going to be read. There's a letter specifically for Sardis. And so you can imagine the excitement, the anticipation. Uh, The service probably began as it normally did, prayers, songs. And then it was time the pastor would get up, and and he would take the letter, and he would begin reading, most likely at chapter 1, verse 1, the, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. You can sense the, the, the quiet hush settling over the congregation. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear it and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. There's a, there's a seriousness about this letter. And then the, the, the pastor would read uh, what John saw as he had a vision of Jesus Christ. And, and maybe the congregation uh, was a little taken aback. It's a very strong, maybe a little frightening vision that Jesus presented there has some rough edges that maybe they had forgotten about in his holiness, in his, in his majesty. But then the pastor would have begun reading the letter to the other churches, neighbor churches, Churches that the people in Sardis were familiar with, and, and it, was, it would undoubtedly be fascinating to hear what Jesus thought of them. And, and so we read the letter to the church in Ephesus, and Jesus commends them for some things and, and rebukes them for, for losing their former love. They hear Christ's comforting words to so the, the suffering Christians in Smyrna, and everyone acknowledges that it's very hard 
in Smyrna. And then the letter to the church in Pergamum, a church that lives in the shadow of Satan's throne. And Jesus' commendations again and his rebuke, same with the, the church in, in Thyatira, just down the road from them, a, a church they'd be very familiar with. And Jesus praises them for their love and faith and service, but rebukes them and harshly because they're allowing this woman Jezebel, a so-called prophetess, to lead people into sexual immorality. And the people in Sardis probably said, yeah, we know exactly who he's talking about, met her. Boy, good for Jesus for pointing that out. But now it's time for the letter to the church in Sardis, and there would have been great uh, eagerness and anticipation because none of the things that Jesus mentioned uh, in uh, regards to these other churches, the Nicolaitans who have their false teaching, and this woman Jezebel, that's not apparently, apparently those things aren't present in Sardis. Jesus doesn't mention them. Sardis has a great reputation, and, and it would just be normal for the people in the congregation to assume that Jesus would say nice things about them, just like everyone else was saying. And so they couldn't wait to hear the praise that Jesus would have for them. Well, how shocked they must have been when the pastor reads, and now to the angel of the church in Sardis, right? The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. You are dead. These are the words of Jesus Christ, Lord of the church, the Jesus they profess to believe in. And what Jesus, you see, is is, is, is saying with, with incredible clarity and precision is that the church in Sardis is a fraud. That their reputation is not matched by the reality. There's a fatal discrepancy between what people are saying and between what Jesus says. Between what people see and what Jesus sees. It's a very sober reminder to every church that the same could be true. You see, it's, it's possible to name the name of Christ as a church, to have a reputation among men without having the reality before God. And what's true of a church is, is equally true for us as individuals. It's possible to be known as a Christian and not be known by Christ. In Matthew 7, Jesus specifically talks about that. Maybe you remember where he says on that last day, many people, many people, not a few, many will, will come and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this? Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons all in your name? And Jesus will say those awful words, depart from me, for I never knew you. Their reputation was not matched by a reality. A, a, a letter like this, uh, it, it strikes close to home. Harvest has a reputation for being alive. That's not a bad thing. Uh, Jesus does not rebuke the church in Sardis for having a good reputation. He rebukes them because... It's not matched by the reality. They don't live up to their reputation. 
And they've become enamored with their reputation and, and confident in their reputation and have lost sight of Jesus. And so Jesus, the loving Lord, just speaks devastating words to this church. In all of their eagerness and anticipation, I know your works, you have a reputation for being alive, you are dead. Now, we need to remember that Jesus is not trying to shame them. He's trying to save them. These are words for their benefit, for their good. The Jesus who died on a cross is eager to see these people who profess his name to come into the reality of that profession so that they are saved and not condemned. And that's exactly why he speaks with this clarity and with this harshness. Because the truth needs to be heard. They need to receive it. He's, he's, he's breaking through, you see, the fog of their deadly presumption and correcting their self-deception with the light of truth. That's what Jesus does. So let's just note first his assessment. Because it's a devastating assessment. You have a name that's the word there. You have a name for being alive, but you're dead. And the question that must have come across people's minds as they, as they heard that is, why in the world would Jesus say that about us? What is going on that we don't know about? What, what secret sin is, is there in the congregation that would cause Jesus to say such a, such a harsh thing? What, what heresy maybe is being fomented among leadership? Why would, why would Jesus say this? What awful, awful thing must be taking place that Christ, the Lord of the church, would say this to us? And the, the frightening fact, you see, is he doesn't point to any scandal. He doesn't point to a heresy. He points to something much more normal, much more natural, much more subtle, and thus much more frightening. This is a church that's just sort of fallen spiritually asleep. Notice what Jesus points to. The first thing is a spiritual stupor. Jesus commands this church to wake up. It could also be translated as become those who are watchful. Uh, the, the, the Christians, you see, in Sardis are guilty of spiritual sleepwalking. They're they're moving, right? If you've ever seen someone sleepwalking, they're, they, they're moving. They, they might even be talking. They're just not aware of their surroundings, the reality that, 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 uh, of what's going on about them. That's the church in Sardis. They're doing the motions, but they're not aware of and awake to spiritual reality. They're doing church but, but you don't have a sense that they're awake to the glory of God and the wonder of the gospel and the beauty of Jesus and the urgency of eternal things. When, when Jesus says, be watchful, he's often talking about um, being ready for the second coming, being ready for the day of judgment. And the church in Sardis seemed to be a busy church but not, not awake to those things. You just don't have a sense of, of, of spiritual urgency and seriousness. And that spiritual sleepiness concerning the, the, just the reality of spiritual things 
the reality of eternal things, the reality of sin and judgment and the glory of Christ and the necessity for mission. You see, that, that, that sleepiness led directly to a failure in good works. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> so Jesus says, secondly, I've not found your works complete in the sight of my God. That's another sober reminder, right? We are saved by grace alone, amen? We're saved by faith alone, not by our works, praise God. But where true grace is present and where true faith is, is, uh, is active, there will be evidence in a life of obedience and love, humility and kindness, the fruit of the Spirit. It'll be evident. And on the last day, the scriptures even say that we're going to be, uh, the, the books will be opened. And, and what uh, Jesus will be looking for is evidence. Not just a profession. Did you profess to believe in me? Many will say, yes, Lord, we did profess to believe in you. But is there, is there evidence that there was Real powerful grace and faith active and that God was transforming a life. And you see, Jesus says your works, your deeds are not complete. They were begun, not, they, were, they weren't completed. We, they got left off somewhere. When this church began, it was full of faith in Christ. It was full of a zeal for, uh, for, for his cause. It was, it, was, it, was, uh, it was full of love for other people. Look at the church in Acts chapter 2 and, and how they gave things away in order to support and provide for each other. And Jesus says that, that's what used to be there. Strengthen it again. Strengthen what remains. There's a dying flame here that needs to be fanned. Because now, you see, they were living on the reputation of past passions without experiencing the truth and the reality of them. One of the great dangers of a church is to settle for the appearance of godliness without striving for the reality of it, to settle for other things, you see, to, to settle for being orthodox or being conservative or being socially engaged or, so, or, or culturally relevant. That those are the things that we're sort of about so that in truth we're about something other than the glory of God and the beauty of Christ and the mission that he's called us to. You see, it's, it's easy for OPC churches to live on our past reputation. And we, can, and we can point back if you know your history and you can say, well, you know what? In 1936, we took a stand against liberalism. We took a stand and it was costly. Men lost their pulpits and their churches and, and their jobs and, uh, and their reputation. Well, actually, we didn't take a stand. Our fathers took a stand and our fathers might be wondering if we would have the courage today to do what they did then. See, friends, uh, it's, not, it's not okay to live on past reputation, to, to live on a reputation of past glories. Jesus looks at where are we, who are we today. Because the church that's living on a, on a reputation you can easily, you see, not see the lack that's there. Is there a genuine concern for, for the glory of God? Is there a sense of the reality, the the glory of, 
of the God that we profess? Is there, is, there, is, there true, is there conviction of sin before God, of brokenness before God? Is there a, a, a hunger for Jesus to be magnified in the world? Is there a burden for lost people? Is there a, a, a commitment to prayer? Not because it's the right thing to do, but because we can't possibly survive or be the church or do the mission that we've been called to without it. Or you see, will we settle for just doing church for church's sake? Settle for what's in the bulletin rather than what's in reality. So what's the specific nature of the failure here? Well, two things. One is evident because it's named. The other thing is evident because it's not named. The first is Jesus mentions soiled garments. There were a few in the congregation that did not have soiled garments. Just think of that, right? Jesus says to Harvest, a few of you, few, few of you do not have soiled garments. What does that say about the rest of you? Well, the rest of you do. What does that mean? Well, it means that this church, for all of its reputation for liveliness, was actually worldly. They were very comfortable in the world around them, and the pollution of the world around them was rubbing off on them. It is true that they did not have a Jezebel in their church leading them into uh, sexual immorality and participation in the pagan feast. Tragically, it appears that they did not need a Jezebel. They were able to be worldly all on their own. It's a, it's a word for conservative American churches like ours. Do you, do you know that one of the things that strikes our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world, when they come and visit America and the American church, you, do you know that one, one of the things that they, they notice is that we're very comfortable in our godless culture. We easily adopt the world's principles and values and practices. Saints around the world pray for the church in America, not because we're being persecuted, but because we are being swallowed up by our culture. We're worldly. We shop like the world. We entertain ourselves like the world. We love what our society loves. We fear what our society fears. This is a call, friends, for us to reflect what would Jesus say about the garments of Harvest Church? Where have we allowed the world to rub off on us? I remember someone saying, he's never seen glovey mud. And that means when you stick a glove into mud, the, the mud doesn't get glovey, the, the glove gets muddy. Uh, when, the when the church sort of gets comfortable with the world, the world doesn't get churchy, the church gets worldly. What would Jesus say? And then the second thing is failed witness. G.K. Beale and, and others make the, just the observation that there's a glaring omission in Jesus' comments to the church. He doesn't say anything about persecution. Now that's, that's striking because he, he does talk about persecution with the other churches. Nearly all of them are suffering persecution of one form or another. And, um, and there ought to be persecution in Smyrna because there is a very, very large, very, very powerful Jewish community there. And we know from Scripture that everywhere the gospel and the Jewish community come together, there's a collision and there's sparks. Everywhere Paul went, he would go to the synagogue and he would, he would explain the gospel and then uh, the trouble would start. There would be a riot. He'd get beaten. 
there would be attempts to take his life. That's how, that's how his biography reads. I went to this city and, 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 and preached and got beaten, and then I went to that city and preached and got thrown in prison, and then I went to that city and preached and was stoned. And then it, that's, that's what's happening as the gospel is coming into, into collision course with the Jewish uh, religion of the day. Well, why isn't that happening in Smyrna? And then paganism is rampant in Smyrna. Why, why, why are the Christians, why do they have such a, such a great reputation and, and so little apparent suffering? Well, the answer seems to be they've stopped their bold witness for Christ, that they've made a way to curb the hard edges of the gospel. They found a way to sort of come in line with believing in Jesus and yet doing that in a way that would not be offensive to their surrounding community. And the way that would happen then is to stop preaching Christ and Christ alone as man's only hope. To be reconciled before a holy God. The only way to escape the wrath of God. Jesus maybe would become other, other things. Jesus would be the Lord and Savior who loves us and encourages us and helps us be good citizens, be good family members. But not Christ crucified as the one name given under heaven by which men must be saved. And Jesus mentions this, this gospel amnesia uh, in his letter here. Notice that the, uh, he points to the cause of their deadly spiritual disease. It's happened because they've forgotten the gospel. Verse 3, remember what you received and heard, keep it and repent. The phrase, remember what you received and heard. Received and heard is code for gospel. Apostolic teaching concerning Christ. And not just the teaching concerning the truth about Jesus, but the truth about what it means to live in Christ and for Christ. So Paul says in Philippians chapter 4 9, what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Well, what did, what did they hear from Paul? What did Paul preach? Pre- Paul preached Christ and him crucified, a stumbling block. Right? For the Jews. Uh, an offense to the Greeks. How did Paul live? He lived with a passion to know Christ. One thing I do, you see, I press on. To lay hold of that for which Jesus Christ took hold of me. I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. Paul, Paul taught the Christian faith um, as though it were about a person about Jesus. That was the foundation of, of his life and ministry. I, the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So that there's a, there's a way of life, you see, that is in accord with the reality of Jesus and the love of Jesus and the truth that is in Jesus. And Jesus says that's what they have forgotten. You see, the, the church in Sardis, you might ask, well, how, how could you forget about Jesus? Well, it happens incredibly easy. It does not happen. Churches do not um, lose their spiritual vitality because they reject the gospel. They lose their spiritual vitality because they assume the gospel. The gospel is that which we already know. Things that we believe about who Jesus is. Things that we believe concerning what Jesus did. But it is no longer being applied 
and experienced as the necessary power of God unto salvation. And not just salvation meaning the moment of your conversion, but salvation all the way through our sanctification until we're presented spotless before God. This this happens, friends, in churches all the time. The gospel is believed as true, but it is not being experienced as the saving power and transforming presence of God. It It is not rejected, but it is assumed. We already know that. Everyone here knows that already. It's, 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 it's what we already know and already believe, and so we get on to other things. We get on to obedience. We get on to doctrine and theology and helpful teaching on finances and marriage and emotional healing and cultural engagement because those are the pressing issues you see of the day. Pastors are leading culprits in this. Okay? It, it's, it happens in, from the pulpit. Pastors want their church to grow in holiness because the Bible is about holiness and God is holy. And and so pastors uh, begin to apply the law. This is what you must do. Forgetting that the law is good, but the law has no power to transform a life. Only Jesus does. And pastors want the church to be orthodox, and so they teach doctrine, but forget that Though biblical doctrine is essential, doctrine has no power to rescue sinners. And the pulpits are full every Sunday morning with sinners. And we want the church to be relevant, and we want the truth to be practical. And we forget that there's nothing more relevant and nothing more practical than Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And that there's nothing of spiritual value, true value before God that will happen in a church that happens apart from that reality. You see, friends, Jesus is the power of God unto salvation. And when Jesus, you see, is present in all of his saving, transforming power, there's evidence. Hard hearts are broken. People can't just listen to Jesus and then go on with life as though nothing had happened. They, they can't just stay in their sin. They can't stay in their, in their bitterness. They can't, they can't maintain the grudge. They can't just overlook the pornography, the failed marriage. You, you just can't, when you, when you hear Jesus and you see Jesus and, and Jesus is talking to you, you can't, you can't just move on trusting that your church is sufficient and your doctrine and your activities because it's not. It's not. Jesus is talking to us. He gives us a warning, a command, remember and repent. Remember what you received and heard. Remember the gospel? Remember Jesus as proclaimed to you by the apostles? Do you remember, do you remember the words of Paul? Do you remember the words of the apostle John and Peter? Well, keep that as they point you to Jesus, as they reveal who he is and, and what he's accomplished and what he's doing. Keep, keep that word and repent of what you're doing. Repentance is essential. Jesus says, if you do not repent, I will come like a thief against you. 
This would be particularly painful for the believers there to hear because uh, the city has experienced this before. Remember, Sardis had the reputation for being impregnable. Uh, it's, it's situated on about 1,500-foot cliffs, and then they have their city wall around that. And it, it was simply impossible to take the city by frontal assault. But twice the city had fallen because they'd fallen asleep. And, and uh, whoever was on the, on the wall supposing to keep watch considered it would just an utter waste of his time. He went to sleep, and soldiers would make their way secretly up in the night and climb uh, up those uh, cliffs, over the wall, open the gate, and in comes the army. Happened twice. So Sardis had a reputation of being impregnable, but because of their reputation and comfort and confidence in their reputation, they were susceptible. And Jesus says exactly the same thing for the church. If you rest in your reputation, I will come like a thief against you at an hour you do not know. And I will discipline you. That's what he's saying. I don't think, I don't think he's ref referring to judgment day here. I think he's referring to discipline. The discipline of the Lord to wake them up. But there's hope here. You see, Jesus, again, he's not seeking to shame them or just frighten them. He is, he is seeking to save them. If they will wake up, if they will remember the gospel that was, as it was taught to them, if they will submit themselves to the lordship of the living Jesus, trusting the fullness of his power, they can be and will be revived. So what do they need to remember? Two things as we wrap up. One, who Jesus is. This is why Jesus introduces himself as the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. That means that Jesus has the fullness of the Holy Spirit and Jesus holds the churches in his hand. And Jesus is able to bring them together. That, that everything that a church needs for revival and life and fruit and faithfulness, it's all in the spirit of Jesus Christ. When he poured that Holy Spirit out on the day of Pentecost, the church was born. And it is by the power of the present spirit that real church happens. Real Christianity happens. As we see Jesus and hear Jesus, and our lives are being trained, uh, transformed by Jesus. And so Jesus says, look to me. Look to me. And see what I will do, secondly. He gives them a vision for coming glory to the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. White garments in the book of Revelation stand not only for moral purity, the righteousness of Jesus Christ given to us as a free gift, but white garments are wedding garments. And there's a banquet feast being prepared right now in the halls of heaven. And Jesus says, those who believe in me, those who see me, those who hear me, those who repent, I promise you, will be clothed in white and invited to the wedding banquet. If we receive Christ by faith today, we will walk with him by sight then. And you will have a name that can never be blotted out of the book of life. This would be penchant, pertinent for the church in Sardis. The, the Jewish community there, we know, has, had just changed their prayer book. It's a big deal. But they changed the prayer book in order to deal with this new thing called the Nazarenes, the Christians. And in their prayer book, this would be prayed in the synagogue there in Sardis every Saturday. <clears throat> Notice it says this. This happened about 90 A.D., right when this letter is, is coming, just before this letter had arrived. The prayer says, For apostates let there be no hope, and let Nazarenes, Christians, and heretics, 
be blotted out of the book of life and not be enrolled with the righteous. And so the, the, the Christians in, in Sardis live, right, knowing that former family members, still family members, but now they've been excluded, but they're praying that your name would be blotted out of the book of life. Well, Jesus says, um, I own the book, and your name will never be blotted out, ever. But I will confess your name before my Father in heaven, before the hosts of heaven. It's a promise from Jesus to you. It's a promise if we repent and believe in him. Friends, I just want to ask you this morning, where in your life does your reputation and your reality not match up? Before the Lord, just ask yourself that question. Where, where in my life does my, the name I bear as a follower of Jesus Christ and the life I live, they don't sink? Whether it's your thought life, your financial life, your sexual life, the way you do relationships, the way you parent, the way you deal with your spouse, the way you deal with friends, the way you deal with at work. Where are those things not connecting? Where are their discrepancies? Jesus calls you today, friend, to repent. And so just ask yourself before the Lord this morning, where do I need to repent? What is unworthy of the name that I bear? What is unworthy of the Lord who saved me and loved me and gave himself for me? Where is the spirit that God has given to you? What's he pointing to? What's he revealing? That needs to be put aside. And by his power, not yours, you don't have any. And as, as we walk together as a fellowship, this is not just you and Jesus all by yourself. This is, this is you before the Lord in the context of his covenant community as we confess our sins to each other, as we encourage each other. What is your relationship with Jesus Christ really like? You're here in church on Sunday morning. What's actually happening through the week? Are you talking to him? Do you have his word open to hear from him? Are you engaged in things that, that help you to grow in him? What's it really like by the power of God the poured out power of the Holy Spirit Jesus is calling us to make our reputation our name more and more be our reality to him be the praise amen Oh, Jesus, I thank you that you address us in plain words and with plain truth, though it may be hard to hear. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you speak to us in order to save us. I thank you that you drive us out of the false comfort of an external reputation. And you force us, Lord Jesus, to deal with the truth, the reality. 
And I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are a sufficient Savior for the reality. That no matter what sin and unbelief and blindness and hardness of heart there might be in our life, as we, as we confess it and repent, Jesus, the grace that gives us that desire is the grace that also assures us of your response. We don't have to pretend that we have it all together, that we've got this figured out. We can acknowledge the truth that we're lost without Jesus and left to our own. We would, we would just so quickly fall away. But Lord, we all thank you that we can also confess that our heart's desire is, is to be the real thing. To be really, truly people of God. To really have met Jesus in his saving power. To be people who know what the love of Jesus feels like. And to realize that it's transforming our life. Jesus, hear the prayers of your people as we repent, as we confess our sin, as we take you at your word, believe your promise, receive your life. And Jesus, in all of it, may you be glorified. Amen. We're going to respond with a song of repentance as we, before the Lord together this morning, just confess that we have not known him as we ought. So would you stand and make these words your prayer before the Lord this morning, 493.